This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. My daughter and I are on Chestnut Street in uptown New Orleans in front of the large Victorian house that was the Crawford family home in the early 1900s. So this is the house where three out of four people died. So Mary Agnes lived here and her parents lived here along with Gertrude and Annie. And you can see it's a pretty big historical house. It's giving Little Women. What do you mean? The book, Little Women. It feels like Little Women? Yes. Why? Because they all live together, a bunch of sisters and a mom, and one of them dies. Emma and Walter Crawford had lived here for almost 20 years before two tragedies happened. First, one of their five daughters, Mary Agnes, died in late June of 1910. Then, Emma's husband, Walter, died less than three weeks later. And now, just about two weeks after his death, the matriarch of the family was dying. It was late Thursday night on July 28th. Emma was drifting in and out of consciousness. She showed the same symptoms as her husband, stomach pains, aching, and just misery. As they had before, the family hovered over her. Emma Crawford had always been at the epicenter of their family. She was loving and committed, and now she was dying. Elise wept as she had two times before. There seemed to be no hope. Three deaths in less than six weeks was too much for Elise to bear. She disappeared to her room several times. That night in July at 10.45, Emma Crawford took her last breath. Her suffering finally ended. She was 54 years old. For the third time in about a month, St. Stephen Catholic Church honored a member of the Crawford family. And for the third time in about a month, a Crawford was buried in the family plot in St. Patrick's Cemetery Number 3. There were other headstones and tombs nearby that were much older. Many had died of natural causes, but few of those deaths were as mysterious as the deaths of the three members of the Crawford family. The newspapers printed a short, simple obituary for Emma a few days later. One read, On Thursday, July 28, 1910, at 10.45 p.m., Emma Steyer, wife of the late Walter B. Crawford, died. Of course, the obituary didn't mention the cause of death. Dr. P.W. Falls had surveyed all of Emma's symptoms. He listened to the sisters as they disclosed Dr. Bacon's diagnosis for their father's death less than two weeks earlier, uremia poisoning. After some thought, Dr. Falls came to the same conclusion. Emma Crawford had been afflicted by the same disease. Just like her husband, Emma died from uremia poisoning. That seems like a big coincidence, doesn't it? Maybe too much of a coincidence. I asked Dr. Neil Bradbury if it were possible for two people in the same household to have uremia poisoning and to die of it within weeks of each other. 
He said, it is possible. Kidney issues can be caused by an ongoing health problem like diabetes or high blood pressure, or they can be caused by a severe injury or when an infection damages your kidneys or untreated diabetes. Did both Walter and Emma suffer from high blood pressure? Did either one of them have accidents that were never reported or did they both have diabetes? None of those things were unusual, particularly at the turn of the century. Now, patients might be treated for uremia poisoning with dialysis or even a kidney transplant. Dr. Bradbury says that many doctors today might come to the same conclusion as Dr. Bacon and Dr. Falls. If the first person in the household received that diagnosis and the second person had the same symptoms, then it strengthens the diagnosis and the other possibilities get ignored. As much as I've read about poisoners in history, I had always assumed it was fairly common, but it wasn't. So it's understandable that all three doctors didn't suspect morphine poisoning. Dr. Fall's diagnosis prevented any questions about Emma's death, if there had been any to begin with. There was no need to involve the coroner or the police or introduce any speculation about her fate. Remember, we found out in the last episode that a modern coroner would use a simple test to determine if it were, in fact, uremia. But that test wasn't available in 1910. Now, at some point, you would expect there to be speculation about the Crawfords dying from mysterious illnesses. But apparently, not quite yet. Elise, Gertrude, and Emma all mourned their mother. Elise, in particular, wept. She was close to both parents. While Annie's sisters were clearly devastated, it was less clear how she felt about her parents' deaths. She seemed to show little emotion, and soon she would go on to become the center of one of the city's most scrutinized investigations of the 20th century. Now that their parents had died, the Crawford women discussed their options— Their father Walter's job as a carpenter for the railway was necessary for them to keep their home. The rent would be due each month, and trying to pay their bills without their father would be challenging. So the three sisters discussed moving in with Walter's stepbrother, Edward, who lived nearby. But they didn't seem as close to him as they were to his brother, Robert, and Robert's wife, Mary. Their aunt and uncle agreed, but with some reservations, and rightly so. Aunt Mary felt that her niece Annie was difficult and controlling, but she had no idea just how controlling Annie might be. But then, before the three sisters began to pack up their clothes and hats and other personal items, they received a pair of visitors. Two men with Walter Crawford's fraternal organization, the Druids, knocked on the front door. One of the sisters answered... May we speak with Mrs. Walter Crawford, the men asked. They were there to deliver a check to Emma Crawford for $500. It was the premium for Walter's burial expenses provided by the Druids. The policy with the Druids was always payable to the wife if there were one who was living. But that was the problem in the Crawford household, replied one of the sisters. Mrs. Walter Crawford had recently died. The Druids were taken aback. Walter Crawford had died less than two weeks earlier. Emma's recent death complicated things. Would the money now be directed to Walter's daughters? Or perhaps to his brother, so Robert might supervise their spending? Women were largely not trusted to manage their own money in the early 1900s. The Druids needed to phone an attorney. 
And once they did, he directed them to distribute the $500 to the couple's four surviving daughters. Annie would get money once again. While the Druids sorted out Walter Crawford's life insurance payment, the three daughters organized their move to their aunt and uncle's home just a 15-minute walk away. In 1910, Robert and Mary Crawford lived on Peters Avenue. That street has since been renamed Jefferson Avenue. When Elise, Annie, and Gertrude all knocked on their aunt and uncle's door, it was clear they were in for a change. Their home was smaller than the Crawford's house on Chestnut Street, but it would be comfortable enough. The sisters sat down with Uncle Robert and Aunt Mary, and they agreed on rent that each woman would pay to stay in the house. Elise would help supplement Gertrude's rent since the youngest sister was still in school, but Annie would need to pay her share of the rent herself, and she still didn't have a job. Annie had been out of work for more than a year now, and yet she promised she had the money for the rent because of her share of her sister and her father and her mother's life insurance policies. Less the funeral expenses, of course. Not seeing anything so far? Now Crawford. And I think it's gonna be one of the big ones, but I'm not sure. My 12-year-old daughter and I still haven't found the Crawford family gravesite in St. Patrick's number three. We need to find it to see just how much money Annie had spent on it. That might tell us a little bit more about whether money was really a motive. Okay, so look, just pay attention to where we are. You know what? I wonder if we do a grid search. Come here. Watch, this is what we do. I think we'll start down here and we'll walk together but across the way from each other. Do you know what I'm saying? So you'll look at these two sets, and I'll look at these two sets. So make sure you see every one of them. You ready? You start. You go down that way. I'm going to go over here. We're going to go at the same time. Here? Yeah. Start down. Go through the center. Ready? The agreement between Elise and Annie and Gertrude and their aunt and uncle should have been simple. The Crawford women were moving into an established home with Mary and Robert, their aunt and uncle, people they were supposed to defer to. But that's not at all what happened. Because Aunt Mary and her niece Annie really disliked each other. To put it simply, both women wanted to be the head of household. Annie's sisters in the Crawford household on Chestnut Street were fairly passive. She got her way a lot, and that certainly happened with Walter Crawford also. But Aunt Mary was anything but passive. Historian Terence Fitzmaurice says that Annie found out quickly that Mary Crawford was not easily controlled. Those are two women that do not like one another. Annie has come into Mary Crawford's house and tries to dictate the norms of the household. Aunt Mary had always despised the way that Annie tried to control everyone, including her own sisters. When young Gertrude got a crush on a boy, Emma and Elise tried to encourage the romance, but Annie stepped in and forbade Gertrude from being courted. That's the dynamic. You have Annie and her sister coming into this house, and there are just too many women in the house for Mary Crawford. One too many, and that's being Annie. 
If you were listening to this story and you wanted to be generous, you might think that perhaps Annie was just in mourning and she had little patience for women who were even more assertive than she was. But her niece-in-law, Cecile Leo, says Annie was still just as prickly decades later when Cecile met her. Remember, before Cecile and Patrick were first married, Pat had been living in the family home in Port Arthur with his aunt Annie, though he called her Nanny. Pat and I did, you know, we had a discussion before we married. Do we want to get an apartment or did we want to get a house or, or, and he said, well, that was his home. I mean, the, the house that he and Nanny were living in, he had purchased that house after World War II for his parents. And it was in his name and he was the owner of that property. And he, and so I said, well, why can't we just live there till we decide what we want to do. So Cecile and Patrick got married, and Cecile moved into the home where Nanny had lived for decades. Cecile sensed immediately that Annie Crawford would be a difficult woman to live with. The one time that I did get aggravated, because I had bought a shelf for our bathroom to keep the towels on, because when you'd be in the bathroom, if you need a towel, you had to go into the another room to get the towels. So I had these towels, and and I'm I'm a person that when I fold my towels, I fold them all the same way. She would, during the day, she'd be there by herself, of course, and I guess rumbling around, and she'd go in there, and she'd take those towels, and she'd she'd cross them different ways, (laughs) where where they weren't weren't even and folded, you know. And I'd, I'd get there in the evening, and then I'd look up at those towels, and I'd say, now, why did she do that? So I'd rearrange them. Cecile and Annie were engaged in a quiet battle over the control of the household. It was a young bride pitted against the self-appointed house manager. Well, she did that about three times, and I, I don't know if she thought that she would stir me enough that I would say something to her about it, but I didn't. I'd say, Nanny did it again. I straightened my towels out again. And, and then she finally gave up. She stopped doing that. <laughs> but I don't know if she was doing that to aggravate me. I'm sure she was. I'm sure that she was, too. But Cecile says despite any acrimony between them, it didn't occur to her to be suspicious of Annie Crawford, probably because no one in the family would talk about her life in New Orleans. I had no idea that anything was strange about Nanny. She was very quiet. And like I said, she had that one spot on the couch in the living room, and she sat there hours on hours just and not say a word. Clearly, Annie had been gloomy for her whole life, and that remained the case when she was an elderly aunt living with her nephew and his new wife. I loved my aunts, so it's hard for me to relate to Cecile's experience with her. But I asked historian Terence Fitzmorris about the way people described Annie. I think many of us have stories of, of I, mean, I had old aunts that gave me the creeps. I mean, they were in their 80s and I was, you know, nine or 10 years old and uh, they were relics of the Civil War. I mean, and they, they were just the creepiest old women and biddies that I ever met in my life. And I didn't want to go into their homes because they were dark and they were filled with mahogany and, you know, there were rooms that you couldn't sit in because they did, they wanted to keep it, you know, clean and pristine for the priest to come over. You know, they were just unpleasant people. Doesn't make them killers. 
doesn't make them killers, no, but it made them unpleasant. And I can see where somebody unpleasant would rouse the suspicion when outward appearances are so important. Most people wouldn't think elderly ants were suspicious or murderers in 1910 or now. It seems silly. In fact, the theme of little old ladies poisoning people was so outlandish that Hollywood used it for a ghoulish, wonderful comedy called Arsenic and Old Lace. In 1944, Cary Grant starred in the Frank Capra movie. It's about a man who discovers that his two elderly aunts are poisoning lonely old men. It was billed as the funniest movie you'll ever see, even though it was about a pair of serial killers. But back in 1910, 28-year-old Annie Crawford hadn't aroused suspicion yet. By August 1st, there had been three deaths in the Crawford home. Annie's sister, her mother, and her father. If she were a poisoner, was she murdering them simply for the life insurance money? It didn't seem like a big enough motive. But she had lost her job at the sanitarium, so perhaps she needed the money. Or maybe she just disliked those people in her family. Or maybe she was addicted to drugs. Even without a clear motive, it's difficult to dismiss three deaths as coincidence. There just seems to be too much dying. Right now, we might have enough information to suspect a serial killer inside the Crawford family. And if that's the case, were there more family members at risk? Let's go through the potential victims. The first was Annie's Uncle Robert. In 1910, Robert Crawford welcomed the Crawford sisters into his house on Peters Avenue. Welcome might be a strong word. Even though they had just lost both of their parents, Uncle Robert quickly made them agree to pay monthly rent. Robert had always been a respectable resident of New Orleans. He was a motorman for one of the city's streetcar lines for years. He had a reputation for being polite and attentive to customers. But in his own household, Robert seemed almost anonymous. He paid little attention to any of the women in the house except for his wife, Mary. He just floated around, not getting in the way. But so did his brother, Walter, and he had ended up in the family tomb. Then there was Aunt Mary, who already had a tense relationship with her niece. Annie complained that Mary was the controlling one, not her. Annie said, Every time I left the house, Aunt Mary would want to know where I was going. She gossiped all over the neighborhood. She was always trying to pry into my business. I hate that. I hate people who are always talking. Both Annie and Aunt Mary were strong-willed, and the power struggle between the two made the household unpleasant. Aunt Mary was definitely a potential victim. There was also Annie's youngest sister, Gertrude, who wasn't even 18 yet. It was unlikely that she had done enough to really aggravate her sister, so she would not have been a likely victim. And then there was the oldest sister, Emma, who was married and living in Texas. Annie said they were actually close, and Emma agreed. So no major conflict there. So finally, we have Elise. 24-year-old Elise Crawford was very, very complicated, even before the deaths of her sister and her parents. But before we get to that, let's start with her job. Author Alan Gotro says that Elise and Mary Agnes both had the same career. Elise was a stenographer 
she would have had to have gone to a school to learn that there wasn't right. any type of, you know, clinical type of uh, internship. So she would have had to go into school like that. The public schools at the time were kind of top notch. Elise seemed to be a hard worker. And for more than a year, she and her two sisters lived with Aunt Mary and Uncle Robert on Peters Avenue with no major issues, it seems. Christmas of 1910 was a time of sadness. It was their first Christmas without their parents there at the dinner table for the holiday meal. Easter of 1911 came and went, and soon summer arrived. Annie still wasn't employed, but Elise was, while Gertrude was still in school. That summer, there were problems brewing in the house. Annie and Elise bickered a lot, even more than usual. Elise accused Annie of trying to control her and Gertrude and just about everyone else. Annie snapped back that Elise had given her the cold shoulder for much of her life. Elise would go days without even acknowledging that Annie was there in the home. It was clear to Aunt Mary that there was tension between the sisters. There was a six-year age difference between the two. It's also unclear what Annie's goal was. For a woman in the South in 1911, it was socially unacceptable to remain unmarried. She didn't seem ambitious in her career, clearly. She was moody and distant, and now she wasn't getting along with Elise or Aunt Mary. Annie was also running out of money. Annie Crawford was certainly sneaky on Friday, September 22nd of 1911. She had taken the St. Charles streetcar to the New Orleans Sanitarium, the hospital she had been fired from the previous year. It had recently been renamed Presbyterian Hospital. As Annie strolled through the hospital, she stopped to talk with some nurses that she knew. Why are you here? They asked. I loaned Mrs. Lewis my fan, Annie told them. I'd like it back now. Mrs. Lewis was one of the hospital's housekeepers. After she located the woman and retrieved her fan, Annie lingered. When she was alone, Annie opened the door to the cabinet at the drug dispensary. She took a jar with some white pills inside and slipped the jar into her pocket. Soon, Annie Crawford was waving goodbye to the nurses at the Presbyterian Hospital. And then she rode the streetcar back to her aunt and uncle's home. What happened next would finally turn people's attention to Annie Crawford. At the end of that Friday in 1911, Annie Crawford's younger sister, Elise, returned home. She had not seemed the same for more than a year. The deaths of Mary Agnes and her mother and her father had all weighed on her, leaving Elise constantly on edge. She was weepy and prone to lashing out, especially at Annie, her mercurial sister. Weekends in the Crawford household had been especially difficult, too much togetherness, and this one would be even more terrible. Author Alan Gotro tells me what happened next. Well, Elise returns. She's coming home from uh, her job as a stenographer to the residence that they they lived in. And, uh, of course, there was her aunt and uncle that were there in addition to Annie and Gertrude. 
Soon, Elise was complaining that she didn't feel well, a feeling that had started at work, and she had actually vomited when she first came home. A bit later, Annie handed Elise a drink and her dinner, which wasn't unusual. Aside from her Aunt Mary, Annie was home more than anyone else, and women who were home were expected to take care of the people who were working. Annie watched as Elise slowly ate her food and took sips of tea, but then suddenly she spit something out. Elise looked disgusted. She flashed an angry glare at Annie. This tastes doped, she yelled. Annie stared back and calmly told Elise that she was being ridiculous, even hysterical. Elise had been erratic for months. Annie assured Aunt Mary that her sister was imagining things, but Gertrude eyed Annie. The day before, Annie had offered her a glass of milk, but Gertrude spit it out because it also tasted off, as if it had soured. Now, Gertrude didn't know what to think. Elise continued to complain throughout the night. She put her hands on her stomach and moaned. And she starts complaining of stomach pains. And so Annie took her upstairs to lay, to lay her down in the hopes that she would feel better. But Elise didn't feel better. Her stomach continued to ache. She cried, she screamed, and she had a difficult time even talking. Aunt Mary raced to the room where Elise was lying. Her eyes darted to Annie, who was standing nearby. She begged Annie, call a doctor. So Annie went next door and called a doctor for the fourth time in 14 months. And soon a physician was at their door. The people in the house were concerned for the young lady having lost the father, the mother, and the younger sister due to what was termed, quote, mysterious illnesses. The family physician was a guy by the name of Dr. Marion McGuire. Dr. McGuire had been treating Elise for extreme nervousness for the past year, so he knew her well. She complained that she felt lethargic. She grimaced from the immense pain. And after examining her, he prescribed columel and soda to relieve the stomach distress, kind of like bicarbonate and a soda, okay. but they were in, in type of pills. Annie Crawford, after receiving the prescription, she went to the drugstore and when she returned, administered that medicine to her sister. Later on, she gave Elise a cup of broth, but Annie gave her another capsule to make her feel better. That's the bicarbonate type of capsule, right? Allegedly. Okay. After a lot of fidgeting, Elise Crawford finally calmed down and then fell asleep in her bed. The house on Peters Avenue became quiet. Annie, Gertrude, Uncle Robert, and Aunt Mary all turned in for the night. The lights were flipped off. The night was warm, and Elise Crawford was fading. On the following day, Elise's Aunt Mary goes to check up on her and she finds her in a rocking chair and she's not moving. And Annie was called to the room. When she got to the room, she lifted Elise's arm up and let it drop. She thought she was dead. But Mary, the aunt, now listen, this is interesting. Mary accuses Annie of having something to do with her sister's condition. Before Annie could respond to the accusation, Aunt Mary yelled at her to call Dr. McGuire. Annie slunk down the stairs and walked to the neighbor's house, but she didn't call the physician. 
She would later say that Aunt Mary scared her so much when she yelled that Annie was too stunned to even call. She was afraid of Aunt Mary. But she could also see that Aunt Mary was frantic and upset over Elise. So Annie made her aunt something that might help. Well, when she returned back to Elise's room, she brought her aunt something in a glass. It looked like something was mixed up in it to calm her down. Well, Mary bats it out of Annie's hands, said, I'm not taking this. And she looks at her with this very accusatory look, if you know what that accusatory look looks like. I think I do. Aunt Mary clearly didn't trust her niece, and it sounds like it was for good reason. I think it's time to talk about the obvious conclusion that we're all likely coming to. Annie Crawford was a serial poisoner. But why was she a serial poisoner? Was she killing for financial gain or maybe out of spite? And her sister Elise, if she died, would be her latest victim. But who would even believe she was capable of that? Not most male doctors, not her uncle, not her father, and maybe not even veteran male police investigators. Most women weren't considered capable of cold-blooded murder, even though it did happen. And in those rare cases, there were usually extenuating circumstances like abuse or mental illness. But the assumption that women are rarely violent follows gender patterns in law. I talked with retired law professor Linda Frost about it. When we think about women killing, it's usually in retaliation for something or because of abuse. It is not seem to be simply from for the sake of money. Do you yeah. think that's surprising to people? I think it's I think it is probably a bit surprising and there are gendered patterns to violence. But that doesn't mean that everybody follows that overall pattern. So, I think we're as people were very bad at assessing outlying risks and experiences. So the unusual patterns surprise us. Like the female family annihilator, those cases are pretty unusual. But of course, women are capable of doing pretty much anything, as are men. Generally, things don't happen in, in ways that are horrifying, but sometimes they do. And that's, that's individualized. It seems clear in this case that Annie Crawford was capable of being a multiple murderer. But why use poison? We've talked about how calculating poisoners need to be. It's not a spur-of-the-moment type of weapon. You have to know what you're doing. Use too little and the victim won't die and then they might be suspicious. Use too much poison and a coroner might find the cause. Dr. Neil Bradbury says that sorting out the mindset of a poisoner can be tricky. The thing that's hard to understand, we try to think about the rationale for poisoners and try to think about what would motivate them. I think a lot of the time we're just unable to do that because there isn't a rationale. We're trying to think about a rational explanation for something that just isn't working. Because they're not thinking right. They do have mental health issues that prevent them from thinking in an irrational way. And so I think a lot of the time, us trying to figure out why a person would commit murder with poison is just not going to be able to be done because we're thinking rationally and they're not. But rational or not, Alan Gotro says that Annie Crawford was discreet and sneaky and streetwise. 
I consider her quite cunning, not clever, but cunning. And that denotes some sort of critical thinking. And so I don't know if critical thinking, uh, it, it can be learned, but I think they had a very good education. They really did. Early that Saturday morning, Annie watched over her sister waiting for a doctor whom she never called. As she gazed at Elise, Annie kept a little secret. A couple of them, actually. The first one is something we've suspected all along, that Annie was an addict. For years, Annie had been curious about the medicines she issued to nurses at the New Orleans Sanitarium. She could see their effects on patients, how they calmed people in pain and lulled them to sleep until they could heal. And just like other medical workers had done before her, Annie Crawford tried some of the drugs. And the one she found she liked the most was morphine. So she's at the hospital, and at some point, we think that she becomes addicted to morphine. Did she admit that she was addicted to morphine? Yes, eventually. When a person was addicted to drugs or was an alcoholic, they were not considered to have an illness. They were considered to be insane. Hmm. So here's, here's my theory. She probably ran into one of these Civil War veterans that probably lost a limb and got addicted to morphine. And he probably sang the praises of it. And perhaps maybe she just tried it and Hmm. liked it. Well, I'm sure she saw the effects in patients and maybe it made her curious. Morphine was was highly addictive back then, still is. And um, I think she just kind of fell into it. That, That was my theory. But Annie was keeping another secret too. Her sister, Elise, was also addicted to morphine. Elise had given birth to at least one child, and she was never married. This would have been disgraceful in the early 1900s. Elise had been sleeping with a man, the grocer, Edward Zahn, but he wouldn't marry her. She talked about it with her family's previous landlord, Mrs. Dunn. Elise had confided in her and said that the man that was the father of her child did not marry her, she would then find no problem with having the embrace of Mother Earth. What does that mean? You know, I'm going to com- kill myself. Who knows if the, if, the, if the childbirth, she wasn't damaged in some way and was in utter pain and, and took morphine in order to dull the pain of, of any of, her, of those afflictions, not only physical, but now mental uh, instability, where she was just broken about the loss of her child, given up in childbirth, and the loss of her sister and mother and father. And like many addictions, it sounds like Elise started using morphine when she was having life troubles, and then she wasn't able to stop. After her sister and her parents died, Elise continued to unravel, and her addiction became even worse. Now, in 1911, in uptown New Orleans, the 25-year-old was fighting for her life quietly. Had Elise taken some of Annie's morphine pills and ingested too much? Had Annie given her too many? Was this a suicide attempt? Or was Elise poisoned? Annie hovered nearby as Aunt Mary fretted, and then Mary wondered where Dr. McGuire was because Annie had called him quite a long time ago. Elise was deeply asleep and snoring at this point. Aunt Mary turned quickly to Annie Does she always snore when she sleeps? She asked. Sometimes, replied Annie. Annie, what did you do? 
Mary snapped. Annie glared at her aunt. Mary ordered Annie to head back down the stairs and call Dr. McGuire again. This time, Annie did it. When she returned, Annie circled Elise, the sister who was never kind to her, not ever. 18-year-old Gertrude was nearby. She felt unnerved. When Aunt Mary slapped away the drink that Annie offered her earlier that morning, Mary seemed convinced that Annie had done something funny to Elise's food. And now Elise was unconscious and she might die. And yes, the night before, Elise had accused someone of tampering with her food. It tasted like horrid chemicals. But Gertrude knew that Annie and Elise never got along and they were always accusing each other of something. But here's what's interesting about Gertrude. She may have been young, but she was astute enough to be frightened because she knew that Elise and everyone in the family had a life insurance policy, including her. And I'm sure you all remember who the beneficiary was. I love old, old crimes. It's not often that I get to meet someone who actually knew the killer or the victims. Cecile Leo knew Annie Crawford 40 years after this story concluded, but Annie's personality seemed to stay consistent. Even in her 80s, she was still ornery, still hard to read, and still a mystery. We know now that Annie ended up living with Cecile in Texas. So one big question you might be asking is, Why wasn't she in prison? There are some crimes in our family histories that we don't mind talking about, and some that we want to keep buried. Cecile's husband, Patrick, wanted to keep the story of his Aunt Annie deeply, deeply buried. I asked Cecile if she ever wondered why Pat never wanted to go to New Orleans. We take our trips on the sailboat every summer. We'd be gone about three weeks. And we sailed in and out at Southern Yacht Club in New Orleans. And I mentioned to Pat, you know, that since we were in New Orleans and we'd be there two or three days, and did he have any relatives that he could contact? And he said, none that I'm interested in. We have just two episodes left and more surprises to come. On the next episode of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right... I mean, I wasn't a good nurse. I wasn't as attentive as I should have been. I was skipping treatments. I was skipping certain medications. Obviously, they weren't getting the medications that were owed to them. A high nurse is not a good nurse. Elise was unstable and had threatened to kill herself at least once before. And she had a child out of wedlock. And imagine in a Roman Catholic Irish family, uh, a child born out of wedlock. That That was a serious issue for her to face. That's when the detectives are like, there's no way all four of these family members who were in totally fine health before just happened to come into this woman's orbit and then died unexpectedly. There's no way she's not related in some way. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. 
I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.